welcome to the 23rd episode of Tarzan's Diplomat, Canada's one and only satirical diplomatic thriller. We are in the home stretch now and we hope you're enjoying the story. If so, please don't forget to leave feedback on iTunes. Those pesky search ranking algorithms need to be fed. And if you have any comments or diplomatic anecdotes for McGregor's next adventure, please email Keith at keyholiday at tarsensdiplomat.com. And now, here is the author podcasting episode 23. The Tarsans Diplomat Chapter 26 Continued Ten minutes after Sleeth left, at about five minutes to eight, another Russian arrived. I recognized him from the Hotel de l'Imperatrice. Moshinsky steered him into a seat diagonally across the table, presumably so the Canadians would not sit as a block. I listened in on the headphones as they chatted casually in Russian. I guessed that the other man was from the Russian mission in Brussels. They talked about the usual topics— Chelsea's chances in the Champions League, the expensive tastes of Russian girlfriends, the even more shocking price of providing security for them, and of course, the price of oil. They didn't seem worried about their upcoming conversation with the Canadians, other than making a few dismissive jokes about Ravinsky's obsession with Ukrainian diaspora politics. Team Canada arrived shortly afterwards. Kennedy sat beside Mashinsky, while Beto took the seat opposite. Ravinsky sat closest to the microphone. This worried me, since Ravinsky was the kind of person who ignored unspoken rules like not fiddling with the flowers in a fine restaurant. Sleeth arrived a minute later, breathing from his brisk walk and apologizing for being late. Okay, let's get to business, said Mashinsky. But before we begin, the usual formalities. Batteries out of phones, and let's confirm. Burner phones only, nothing on email unless you're using your private computer, Gmail address and pretty good privacy to encrypt the emails. He went around the table looking at each person in turn until they nodded. They must do this every time they meet, whispered Lefranc. Sleeth made a joke that his Blackberry didn't work in Europe anyway. When the last person nodded to Mashinsky, he began to speak. Lefranc raised an eyebrow at me. I knew exactly what he meant. Here we had a private room with a Russian oil baron, a Canadian tar sands executive, diplomats from both countries, and a top aide from the Prime Minister's staff. The small talk was illuminating. I'd seen similar dances before, but never with so many dollar signs involved. Mashinsky opened by saying he hoped the Canadian Prime Minister was still pleased with how things were developing after his chat with the Russian President at the last G20 meeting. Beto nodded, adding that the success of the Albertan oil industry was part of the Prime Minister's vision for the country's future economic development. He went on to ask after the health of the Russian President. Mashinsky replied that he'd recently seen Vladimir Vladimirovich, as he called him, full of vim and vigor at some Kremlin event. The Russian diplomat appeared content to let Mashinsky do the talking. I watched the tape turn on the recorder and listened with interest. Mashinsky said that the Russian president also felt that developing Russia's resources was critical to the future strength and international stature of the country. Apparently, the president was pleased to share this initiative on expanding access to the European energy market with Canada, since any new routes in would be useful insurance policies in the current environment. For that reason, he was glad to let the Canadians appear to be taking the lead. There was already enough anti-Russian sentiment without adding to European fears about increasing dependence on Russian energy. Mashinsky took a drink of his wine and continued, I hope there will be no more leaks from your side. That won't happen again, replied Sleeth. The leaker's dead. I looked at Lefranc, who raised an eyebrow. That diplomat? asked Mashinsky. Yes, replied Bedo. How did he die? 
I watched Sleeth roll his eyes. Our security people just finished their report, said Beto. It looks like a prostitute robbed him in his apartment. A Russian one, apparently. The Russians found this very funny, as did Sleeth. A Russian prostitute, exclaimed Mashinsky, pounding his fist on the table in mirth. What Russian woman would take money for sex? Well, said the other with a laugh, I hope she wasn't working for you, Maxime, at least not that night. Maybe she was Ukrainian, you know, more in the price range of a diplomat. Kennedy shifted in her seat uncomfortably, and Ravinsky was, for once in his life, unsure what to say. He stopped fiddling with the tablecloth and stared at the Russians. Only Beto appeared unfazed. He was a colleague and a very promising young officer, said Beto. Mushinsky wiped the smile off his face. Yes, of course, very tragic. Sleeth was still smirking, however. For whatever reason, I'm still glad the leaks have stopped, he said. I was starting to get a very bad feeling about Sleeth. Jean-Christophe appeared and borrowed the peephole to judge the perfect time to materialize in the room and take orders. It was illuminating to see a master at work. I put my eye back to the peephole. Kennedy and the Russian diplomat began to talk about various démarches, meetings, and working group sessions involving the Commission and the most influential member state missions in Brussels. Kennedy referred to scientific research Canada had commissioned proving the carbon footprint of our oil from the oil sands was lower than conventional Venezuelan or Nigerian crude. The Russian diplomat described their new world-class environmental approval process, a concept which seemed to amuse Mashinsky. The diplomats are the straight guys, working in the open with European officials whispered LeFranc. Then Mashinsky and Sleeth sealed the deal with some under-the-table payments. Mashinsky raised his hand and interrupted. Excellent work, but very boring. The real problem is the Green Alliance. I never liked your can-do Canada idea. Bringing up all those other issues wasn't cover. It was stirring a hornet's nest. Now that you've woken up the Green Alliance, what are we going to do about them? That's my question too, Maxime, exclaimed Sleeth. These green protests have caused a mass sphincter tightening at the commission. They can't pass gas, let alone new regulations we need. What is sphincter? asked Mashinsky. Sleeth explained, provoking another round of table-pounding laughter by Mashinsky and the other Russian. Sleeth and the Russians were getting on famously. We know how to deal with environmentalists in Moscow, said Mashinsky, with an abrupt and brutal matter-of-factness. But here it's not so obvious. The Green Alliance is putting a bright spotlight on oil imports. Our European friends must be feeling uncomfortable. I guess he was referring to Friddle. Especially, smirked Sleeth, when the environmentalist is a celebrity. Eh, Kennedy? You think he's really the sexiest environmentalist alive, like they say in European Nature magazine? Kennedy smiled. I have the picture from the magazine pinned up in my bedroom, she said. Mashinsky thought this was so hilarious, he nearly choked on his wine. Nice, said Sleeth. But the big question is, what do you get the eco-terrorist who has everything? Perhaps a facilitation payment? said Mashinsky with a grin, mimicking Sleeth earlier by using his hands to make air quotes around the word facilitation. Great idea, exclaimed Sleeth. I watched as the heads of Beto, Provinsky, and Kennedy jerked towards Sleeth. Hey, I'm just thinking out loud. This whole thing might be blowing up in our faces. Maybe this Green Alliance guy needs something. Isn't this what the aid budget is for? A bit of milk powder here, a human rights project there? I leaned closer to LeFranc. I'm really starting to hate Sleeth. LeFranc nodded. I'm starting to wonder if Sleeth might be capable of hookers and blackmail. Maybe Ian Culloden is a red herring, an ex-soldier who really did have a life-changing moment. Beto looked appalled by Sleeth's idea. Kravinsky was studying his wine glass. Look, we need to get creative here, 
Scalise said to Ravinsky. Let me know if your boss needs a bit of prompting. I can get our CEO to call him. You'll remember we were pretty fast with the money when the jet fuel guys cut off your campaign jet on the tarmac in Thunder Bay. Now it was Ravinsky's turn to look appalled. Why don't you talk to Culloden, he said. I can't make an offer to Culloden, replied Sleeth. We have to comply with all those anti-bribery laws. The compliance department is all over me. Plus, he might get all righteous and put the whole thing in the papers. Sleeth muttered something about the chief of staff saying Ravinsky was supposed to be helpful. Mushinsky leaned forward. We will talk to him. I know some friends who are very private, also very persuasive. But I will come back to you for half the cost. Beto looked uncomfortable. But let's not do anything rash, said Beto. I need to check with Ottawa before we make any major changes to the plan, and the funding modalities will be complex. I smiled to myself. Even when bribing someone, Beto still had the instincts of a good Canadian official to make sure all the details were in order. Should I deal with both of you, asked Mashinsky, via Gmail? He looked at Kravinsky and Beto. Kravinsky stopped chewing in mid-bite and shook his head. No links to the Prime Minister's office. He swallowed, then looked at Beto. And I don't like Privy Council Office being so directly involved either. There was a silence. You must figure out who will do this, interjected Mashinsky with some frustration. You Canadians are so fast and aggressive in hockey, but so slow and conservative in business. Hey, interjected Sleeth. We're talking about Ottawa here, not Calgary. Whatever you want to do is fine with me. Then Kennedy spoke up. I can do it, if that helps. She looked first at Mashinsky and then Beto. Maxime and I will work out something with Culloden. Then I'll have a private conversation with you. Not by phone, said Beto. No, in person, replied Kennedy. Everyone looked relieved. I'm sure you can find some cash in the aid budget, said Sleeth, as Jean-Christophe entered the room to check on the wine. How hard could it be to find some planned parenthood project, or some Palestinian lesbian handicraft thing you haven't axed yet? After Jean-Christophe had poured some more burgundy, the group carried on discussing the details of bribing Culloden, maintaining security precautions, communicating via anonymous Gmail accounts, and opening Gibraltar bank accounts. Lefranc pointed at the turning tapes on the machine. Smoking gun, he whispered. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 27, Sleeth on the Move. The next morning in the safe house, Lefranc and I got up early and worked through what we had learned the night before. Lefranc drew diagrams with names and bubbles and lines of different colors connecting them. The number of lines converging on Sleeth and West Can Energy suggested what we should do next. Sleeth was staying at the Hilton, just outside the old city walls, near the Rue Neuve shopping district. Lefranc and I went there for a morning coffee to develop a plan. Perhaps we could befriend some hotel staff, or possibly even see Sleeth doing something interesting. I had to be careful, though, since Sleeth had met me once before at Violet's lobbyist party. We had hardly ordered our coffee when the elevator doors opened and Sleeth burst out. He was carrying a briefcase with a strap over his shoulder and was carrying an umbrella, despite the fact that it was a nice Brussels day. He strode across the lobby and out the front door. I threw ten euros on the table to pay for the coffee that hadn't arrived yet, and Lefranc and I got up and walked after him. We emerged from the front door just in time to hear Sleeth bark, Eurostar, through the open window of a taxi before he climbed in. That was easy, I said, as we climbed into the next taxi. He's definitely not surveillance conscious, said Lefranc telling our driver to go to the Eurostar terminal at Gare du Midi. Our taxi beat Sleeth's to the station. We watched as Sleeth headed straight for the turnstiles to the platform. I glanced at the departures board. The doors for the next train to London would close in about ten minutes. 
It looks like I'm going to London, said Lefranc with a smile. He quickly bought a ticket on the next train. Do you have your passport and credit cards, I asked? And your glasses in case you get a chance to read over his shoulder? You don't have to treat me like a cabinet minister, replied Lefranc in annoyance as he headed through security. I'll call you. It occurred to me after he was out of sight that his phone was still plugged into the charger in the safe house. I returned to the safe house to continue drawing network diagrams. Later that evening, my phone rang. It was a British phone number. I picked up and heard a rush of background noise. Les sanglots longs des violins de l'automne blessent mon cœur d'une longueur monotone, said a voice. It struck me that Lefranc's voice would sound very similar if he were trying to impersonate Inspector Clouseau. Jean a de longues moustaches, I replied. I thought you forgot your phone here. I bought a phone in a can at a corner store, said Lefranc, with boyish delight. It was cheap. A kid in a turban with a Yorkshire accent showed me how to use it. Lefranc spent a few minutes marveling at the modern world before continuing. My train gets into Brussels in an hour. I sat behind our man on the way to London. He gave a good impression of the ugly American. Lefranc described how Sleeth divided his time between talking loudly on his cell phone in the no-cell-phone carriage or complaining loudly that the coverage was terrible. Calculating the time zones, we figured it must have been in the middle of the night for his wife. I know all about the contractor who screwed up his kitchen renovations in Calgary, said Lefranc, his son's druggy high school friends, and his thoughts on the University of Calgary basketball team and their defensive problems. Also, the head of business development in the Vancouver office, named Jenkins, is about to get fired. A total boob, apparently. Anything useful, I asked? No, replied Lefranc. He had a laptop, and I could see it through the crack in the seats. He was on some website called Facebook, but then he pulled out this black plastic square thing and put it over his laptop screen. Then I couldn't see anything. But, but he could still see it, I asked. Obviously, McGregor. Who would put an opaque black square you couldn't see through on your computer? It's some kind of filter so people sitting beside you can't see your screen. What happened in London, I asked. He went straight to the West Can offices. I sat in the pub across the street. He came out about three in the afternoon with a bunch of guys in suits, but I lost their cab in traffic, so I'm coming home. I went down to the station to meet Lefranc's train. He was one of the first off it. He spotted me in the concourse and stopped to brandish a bottle of Talisker. Excuse me, said the man behind an annoyance as he stepped around Lefranc. My eyes bulged. It was Sleeth. Lefranc spotted him too and almost dropped the Talisker in alarm. We quickly hurried after Sleeth. Didn't you see him board the train? I whispered. We should have guessed, said Lefranc, ignoring my question. He didn't have any luggage. Sleeth headed straight for the taxis. Le Texas Embassy Bar and Grill, s'il vous plaît, said Sleeth in bad French as he climbed in. I noticed the driver roll his eyes and turn on the meter. We were soon ensconced in a booth in a corner of the Texas Embassy, All-American Bar and Grill. I ordered a pair of Bud Lights as Lefranc tried to find something on the menu that wouldn't give him another heart attack. Sleeth had joined a table of about a dozen people near the back. I could see a couple of American-looking, or perhaps Canadian-looking, men in blue shirts and khakis. They looked like businessmen in their casual clothes. Then there were several women. From their clothes and hairstyles, I guess they were Brussels secretaries out on the town. The table was rounded out by three athletic young men. One was black and another wore a University of Calgary sweatshirt. They towered above the women beside them. Our waitress spotted my glance as she brought the beer. Those are professional basketball players, she said, from Les Castors de brain le Lude. Belgium has a professional basketball league, asked Lefranc incredulously, and they're named the Beavers? Yes, she replied. Do you see their team jackets? I don't know what Castor is in English. Those are the American pro players from Philadelphia and Calgary in California. Each team is only allowed a few foreigners.
And the women, I asked? They are amateurs, not professionals, said our waitress with a raised eyebrow before she turned and left us. We watched and ate dinner as Sleeth and his friends drank shooters, ordered more wings and nachos, and generally had a good time. It was well after midnight when the party began to break up. The basketball players, one of the businessmen, and some of the women were talking loudly about going clubbing at some after-hours place in Antwerp. Lefranc poured the remainder of his Bud Light into a nearby houseplant as I paid the bill. We waited outside to see what Sleeth would do. He and one of the Belgian women appeared a few minutes later and moved with a few wobbles towards the Hilton. She giggled as she stumbled, falling into Sleeth. He put his arm around her. Jesus, said Lefranc. He gestured at the small park they were passing. They might not even make it to the hotel. I reached into my pocket, pulled out my Blackberry, and brushed some lint off the camera lens. A photo of Sleeth with his pants down in a Brussels park might be handy, assuming I could get the flash to work. But Sleeth managed to keep his pants on until the Hilton. From outside the glass lobby walls, we could see the happy couple walk past the concierge and into the elevator. We watched as Sleeth leaned over to press the button, and then, just as the doors began to close, they lunged at each other. She threw her arms around his neck, and he jammed his hand up her skirt. She must have giggled, since the concierge suddenly looked up and rolled his eyes. Tell the trade commissioners, said Lefranc. They have a success story for their briefing notes. At least one Canadian businessman is penetrating new markets in Europe tonight. That concludes episode 23 of The Tarsan's Diplomat. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com. If you've been enjoying the story, please leave a review on iTunes or Amazon.ca. And be sure to check your podcasts next week for the next episode, which will be available on Stitcher, iTunes, and all your favorite podcast platforms. 